0: Hello and welcome back to Syria's Lost Generation, a podcast about young Syrians displaced by war. This show is a production of foreign policy in partnership with World Vision and the Syrian American Medical Society. I'm your host, Liam Cunningham. In this episode, we'll take you to the northern Syrian province of Idlib, the last province that is largely controlled by rebels fighting the Syrian government. It is also home to millions of people who have been displaced, from other parts of the country. Many of them are riding out another winter in very basic campsites near the Turkish border, where the Syrian and Russian militaries are less likely to carry out intense airstrikes. But the remaining pocket of rebel control has also been referred to as a kill box because government troops haven't entirely surrounded. Most anti-government fighters from around the country who survived the decade of fighting have ended up in Idlib, The border Idlib shares with Turkey made it a hub of insurgent activity. From the early days of the war, the Turks allowed almost complete free movement of fighters and material in the hopes Bashar al-Assad's government would fall. As Assad regained control of the Lebanese-Syrian border, the Turkish one became even more critical for the insurgents, and so did Turkish support for the uprising. That support and the porousness of the border also fueled the growth of radical groups, including the Islamic State, which would eventually co-opt the rebellion and come to lead it. We're once again joined by David Enders, an American journalist who lives in Beirut and has reported from Idlib. David, can you describe what it was like there?
1: Well, many of the dynamics that animate the conflict now were present there in 2012 and 2013. Even then, there was an influx of jihadis. There was mass movement of of people and material across the Turkish border. And the most significant difference at that time was that the rebels were were pushing toward Damascus somewhat convincingly. They had a lot of support and, and they were making fairly rapid gains. Of course, they stalled far short of Damascus. Uh, But the campaign and the response uh, by the Syrian government just laid waste to cities across north central Syria and eventually resulted in the stalemate that's, that's marked most of the war. The other big difference now is is the firepower and the involvement of, of various factions. Uh, the entry of the Russian air force and ground forces into the war has really been the the primary dynamic that changed the course of the war in favor of the Syrian government. And that introduced also a level of violence that was just, despite all of the violence in 2012 and 2013, was was really unthinkable at that point.
0: Now let's go to Idlib, where we spoke to two people who have seen the full scale of the war's horrors. From the response to the initial protest against the government to the open-air prison much of Idlib has become.
1: 27-year-old Omar Rizouk was studying in Damascus when the first protests occurred. He joined the organizers and began documenting demonstrations in the city's suburbs. I was a student
2: of communications engineering. I studied at the University of Damascus before I was arrested.
1: And when I was free, I came to Idlib. The government responded more severely to protests in Damascus than in Idlib where they also began in 2011. But much of Idlib quickly fell out of the government's control as it sought to consolidate its hold on other areas.
3: The city of Idlib has been under the Syrian government for most of this war. But after days of fighting, it is the rebels who are now in charge.
1: One of those villages is Kefer Darian, where Omar lives. In
2: Damascus, it was different than here in Idlib. In Damascus, there was killing, arresting and beatings. I was arrested at a demonstration. I was shot by the army in my leg, and that's when they took me. I was filming the demonstration. I had a camera, and I was filming. So they shot me in the leg during a demonstration, and I spent three months in Assad's prison. There was torture there. There was killing. When I went to prison, I weighed 150 pounds. When I left, I weighed
4: 110.
1: Omar says that his decision to join those organizing the protests was not a difficult one. I am originally from Idlib, but we spent our entire lives outside the
2: country. My father is a doctor in the university. I was two years old when we went to India, so my father could study biochemistry. I came back to Syria in 2007. And it was totally different inside than what we see from the outside. Everything was for a specific group and subordinated to Assad's regime. So when I joined the revolution, it was because I lived outside Syria and I know the real meaning of freedom and having your rights. And as a youth, I wanted to demand my freedom, I wanted to make my dreams come true, but unfortunately,
4: everything was destroyed.
1: Omar's father, however, disagreed with the stance his son took. In the 1980s, Idlib was a major part of an uprising that took place against Hafez al-Assad, Bashar al-Assad's father. Syria's Muslim Brotherhood, which had a stronghold in Hama, had always been opposed to the Baath Party's rule over Syria, and it led a violent campaign against regime officials and institutions, like the uprising that began in 2011. It was met with brutal force.
4: I know that history. My father was one of
2: them. And that's why he had this big fear in him, because he was about to die in the 80s. My grandmother tells me that the government wanted to kill him, and then they didn't because he was still a kid. And he didn't want us to revolt. He wanted us to be with it, but from afar. He wanted me to continue my education, but I was arrested. The regime arrested me. How am I supposed to finish my education?
1: The war was even enough to split Omar's family. His father and mother divorced, he says, after his mother insisted on traveling to Idlib to be near her son. We didn't want to have an
2: armed revolution, and personally, I was totally against being armed. But it reached a level, if your brother is in the army, and the army is hitting you, he would leave the army and stand with you with his weapon. And that is something normal, because it is his brother. He will defend him for sure. And that's why the revolution failed. Because we wanted it to stay peaceful and we kept asking it to stay peaceful. But in the end we were obliged to fight. The war happened against our will.
1: Yani Mob Kefna Soret Harb. 23-year-old Gaytha lives in Kili, the village directly south of Omar's. She, too, has questioned whether the revolution she decided to support a decade ago has been worth the cost.
3: I would like to tell the people in my generation that are living outside that Syrians are sacrificing to get their freedom. They are sacrificing and they are fighting to get their freedom. But it's tiring. The exhaustion and the pain to get freedom is worth it. We are living death, literally. We are sacrificing our lives, our safety, our stability, all that to get our freedom. Leitha
1: tries to protect her three children from the reality of what is happening, but it is difficult.
3: When there are noises, I try to increase the TV volume or the mobile phone. So that they won't be scared, even though I would be even more scared than them.
1: Omar worries about what the future holds for his children. I am married, thank God. I have three kids. The oldest is
2: four years old. I hope the war and the revolution will not be repeated in his life, because the revolution destroyed us, and that's not what we wished for.
1: The freedom of movement that once existed between Turkey and Syria is now a thing of the past.
5: Ankara says it has already taken in over 2.5 million Syrian refugees and is under pressure to stem the flow of migrants to Europe.
1: Where once the Turkish military turned a blind eye to crossings back and forth. A wall has been built and the Turkish military now uses deadly force to prevent Syrians from entering. One of the reasons Turkey invaded northern Syria was to stop refugees from pouring across the border and to begin returning some of those who had settled in Turkey to Syria.
4: I am one of the many guys
2: that dream of leaving Syria to continue his education and to educate his kids. They are more important than me. Now I might have a chance to continue my education. But there are people who are older than me. They won't be able to continue their education. I might continue, yes. And my wife stopped her education. She was studying biology, and she was stopped from continuing her education because of the events that happened. They arrested her in Aleppo. Same thing. But if you want to go to Turkey, there is no passageway that is open for you. And if you want to go by smuggling, you might be killed on the wall. There are a lot of people who are being killed
1: while they're going to Turkey to find work. In addition to splitting his family, the war has also taken Omar's oldest brother, Mohammed. He was killed by a barrel bomb in the city of Idlib in 2015, while documenting fighting there.
6: Barrel bombs, a new weapon in Syria's civil war.
1: (laughs) Barrel bombs themselves have become a symbol of the civilian toll taken by the conflict. Often made from fertilizer-based explosives packed into 55-gallon oil drums.
6: Barrel bombs are cheap and crudely made. A simple container packed with explosives and sometimes scrap metal.
1: The weapons are unguided, homemade munitions that were often simply dumped out of the back of helicopters by the Syrian military. Some had fuses that were lit manually. When I first heard that this was occurring in 2012, I found it hard to believe. Why would the Syrian military, with its presumably ample stocks, be resorting to rudimentary improvised weapons? A few days later, though, I saw a pair of bombs fashioned from a washing machine drum and a gas canister that had landed in a field without exploding. The reasons for such innovations have never been fully clear and were probably myriad. The Syrian government may have been trying to preserve its stock of more sophisticated munitions or attempting to expand the range of types of aircrafts they could use for bombing. Even transport helicopters could be repurposed to deploy barrel bombs. In any case, the results were terrifying. I remember sitting at a rebel base while the government targeted it with a half a dozen of these munitions, basically striking almost everything around us without hitting the presumed target. In the process, a six story apartment building was partially leveled. I didn't live through this war, I only covered it intermittently. And yet I have strong memories that have stayed with me. In the early days that Omar described, I recall seeing security forces firing at the backs of demonstrators as they fled. That scene played out many times. I was also present in rebel-controlled areas as the government shelled them. An experience that generally amounted to hunkering down and hoping for the best. Then came the planes. The beginning of the air war was a major development, and I only received a small taste. These are some of the most intense airstrikes by the Assad government's jets in three weeks. I was present for assaults on Syrian government air bases in Idlib, and documented the aftermath of one of the first rebel shoot-downs of a government jet. In eastern Syria, I spent a morning with rebels as they tried to shoot down a helicopter with shoulder-fired missiles. Later that day, I escaped an airstrike on a rebel munitions factory by minutes. Almost everywhere I went, I watched civilians dig bodies out of buildings after airstrikes. We're able to pull two children out alive, thank God, but there are still people stuck under the rubble. I saw the first camps erected amongst Idlib's olive groves in 2012, camps that would only grow in size as the war intensified. But I had the luxury of coming and going. These days, when I interview people who actually lived through the war, or parts of it at least, I find myself wondering how they cope with their trauma. I can only begin to imagine what Omar has endured.
4: In
2: Gaza, in Palestine, it is better than here in Idlib. Here in Idlib, there is no work, there is no education, which is the most important thing. There is nothing. The situation is really bad. My ambition is to live in the country that I wish to have, with no priority of people because they are a specific sect, or even a distinction between Shia and Sunni. Because here we had that. The people with Assad had everything, and that was what made us revolt. Syria as a country, there is nothing like it. I don't wish for the other generations to live what we lived.
1: Hamza, a doctor who lives in Idlib, also has four children who only know a Syria at war. The oldest is nine. Like Omar, Hamza was in Eastern Ghouta when the war began. It was where he lived, it was where his practice was. He did not leave Ghouta until 2018 as part of one of the deals brokered between rebels and the government after years of siege. Hamza also lived firsthand another seminal moment of the conflict, the use of chemical weapons that killed hundreds of civilians. It was another moment those fighting the government expected international intervention. President Obama had declared the use of chemical weapons a red line the year before.
4: The biggest attack was in August 2013. I treated about uh, 900 people uh, affected by uh,
1: chemical attack. It would also not be the only time chemical weapons were used.
4: The chemical attacks didn't stop in uh, 2013. This uh, attacks continued in 14, 15, 16, 17. 80.
1: While the attacks of 2013 may have faded from memory outside Syria, they remain fresh in the minds of those who experienced them. They also presage difficult times to come.
4: After the chemical attack on Ghouta on that date, Ghouta entered in a complete siege. So after people passed away by uh, chemical agents, people after two months were passing away by uh, malnutrition and they, they were starving because there is no, no food. The people uh, remember that the international community didn't help eastern Ghouta.
1: Nor is it doing much to help Idlib.
4: The area on the Turkish borders is a sea of tents and this this sea is targeted by uh, rockets all kind of uh, weapons the area is very crowded with, with, with civilians so any shilling on this area will cause a great number of, of casualties
1: Lib suffers from a severe housing shortage as a result of the destruction and constant displacement. It has been a province on the move and in flux for nearly a decade. Raitha herself has been displaced multiple
6: times.
3: Because of migration, there are no houses. Because of the people who migrated from one area to another, because of the bombs that happened in these areas, there are no more houses. And I rent this house because all of our houses were destroyed. I am from Idlib, and I lived in Aleppo. Then, because of displacement, I went to Idlib and from Idlib to all the other countrysides and areas because of the bombs. And when there is shelling in this area, we go to another, and another, and another, until we find a safe place to live in.
1: Reitha was 13 when the war began. Her teenage years were marked by hiding in underground bomb shelters and shuttling from place to place to avoid shifting front lines. She remembers the introduction of air power as a major turning point.
6: There
3: were a lot of victims from both sides in the beginning and then there were victims only from the revolutionaries because of the airstrikes. In the beginning, there were two sides, and then airstrikes started, so people from the revolution started to die, and civilians, kids, women.
1: Both of her parents were injured.
3: My mother got hit. She was injured, and my father as well. And my mom did a lot of medical operations in Turkey, all because of the shelling by the regime.
1: Geitha paints to try and deal with her own trauma from the war and to express herself. What do your paintings talk about?
3: The war in Syria. I made different paintings. Each represents something. Some represent the importance of humanitarian work, Others are about medical work, and others are about war in Syria. My portfolio talks about the importance of humanitarian work in general. I encourage humanitarian work a lot.
1: Turkish occupation in northern Syria has not ended violence. Some factions backed by the Turkish military are notorious for criminality. And there are reports the Islamic State is regrouping in some Turkish-controlled areas to the east of Idlib, there is also still shelling by the Syrian government and airstrikes by the Russian military.
3: We are here in a liberated area, and the Turkish military occupies this area. But that doesn't mean that there is no shelling. A short while ago, they were shelling an area next to the Turkish borders. It was bombed by the criminal Bashar.
1: The war and displacement are creating yet another division, those who remained and those who emigrated.
3: I'm sacrificing to get my own rights and to get safety. We can't even reach our basic rights. Struggling here and there, to be honest, we feel we are greater than the people in our generation living outside.
1: The scope of what has happened in Syria is often hard to comprehend. Dr. Mufaddal Hamadi is the president of the Syrian American Medical Society, which spends tens of millions of dollars annually to help maintain medical infrastructure in Idlib. Dr. Hamadi visits Syria regularly, but was discouraged by what he saw when he traveled to Idlib in February.
5: After 10 years, I'm starting to feel that there is some despair that's settling in because I see no progress, no future. If I ask all the doctors, and they all told me yesterday, if anyone was faced with a chance of leaving the country, immigrating, they will all do that. Last year I was here during the bombardment and I met a child who lost five family members the same day. And I met his brother and what struck me is the fact that they were all numb. Death was something they got used to. It's a daily fact of life. So I'm looking at this future generation of Syria and I can't stop thinking about what kind of future these kids have when I see them, you know, barefoot in the muds in the refugee camps and exposed, you know, to all the different kind of traumas. And I, I can't think about how much uh, psychosocial support they need. And most importantly, they need an education and safety. In the short
1: term, however, there is the fear about what happens if the government attempts to retake Idlib. For Reitha and most everyone else in Idlib, there is nowhere to go if that happens.
3: To be honest, I fear the future, as I told you. It is a mysterious and murky future. There is fear of the regime controlling the liberated areas. There is fear. I don't know. I'm really scared. Because there are a lot of people who encourage freedom and they want the revolution back, so they might get arrested. I will not be surprised at all. I expect the revolution to continue and we might be in even worse situations.
0: So how long will Syria's unrest continue? The future is murky. All of the dynamics that created the war in the first place remain. But in a country with significantly diminished resources, education, health care, and systems of governance will take years or decades to be rebuilt once the fighting ends, whenever that may be. On our next episode, we'll hear from Syrians who managed to make their way not just out of Syria, but out of the region altogether and start a new life in Europe. Meantime, thanks for listening. Our producers are Rob Sachs, Alison Meekham, and Dan Efron. David Enders reported the stories you're hearing on the show. Thanks to Laura Gemmel, Josephine El-Haddad, Elias Abu Atta, John Doutzenberg, and Lobna Hassari for helping bring the series to life. We'll be back next week with another episode of Syria's Lost Generation. I'm Lynn Cunningham. Syria's Lost Generation is a production of Foreign Policy in partnership with World Vision and the Syrian American Medical Society. Both are non-political groups, purely focused on the humanitarian aspect of the crisis.